Chapter 3, Part 3 of The Seven Lamps of Architecture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Todd Ulbrick. The Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin. Chapter 3, The Lamp of Power. Part 3. 18. We have noted above how the wall surface, composed of rich materials and covered with costly work, in modes which we shall examine in the next chapter, became a subject of peculiar interest to the Christian architects. Its broad, flat lights could only be made valuable by points or masses of energetic shadow, which were obtained by the Romanesque architect by means of ranges of recessed arcade, in the management of which, however, though all the effect depends upon the shadow so obtained the eye is still as in classical architecture caused to dwell upon the projecting columns capitals and wall as in plate six but with the enlargement of the window which in the lombard and romanesque churches is usually little more than an arched slit came the conception of the simpler mode of decoration by penetrations which seen from within are forms of light and from without are forms of shade. In Italian traceries, the eye is exclusively fixed upon the dark forms of the penetrations, and the whole proportion and power of the design are caused to depend upon them. The intermediate spaces are, indeed, in the most perfect early examples, filled with elaborate ornament, but this ornament was so subdued as never to disturb the simplicity and force of the dark masses and in many instances is entirely wanting. The composition of the whole depends on the proportioning and shaping of the darks, and it is impossible that anything can be more exquisite than their placing in the head window of the Giotto Campanile, plate 9, or the church of Orsan Michele. So entirely does the effect depend upon them that it is quite useless to draw Italian tracery in outline if with any intention of rendering its effect it is better to mark the black spots and let the rest alone of course when it is desired to obtain an accurate rendering of the design its lines and mouldings are enough but it often happens that works on architecture are of little use because they afford the reader no means of judging of the effective intention of the arrangements which they state no person looking at an architectural drawing of the richly foliaged cusps and intervals of Orsan Michele would understand that all this sculpture was extraneous, was a mere added grace, and had nothing to do with the real anatomy of the work, and that by a few bold cuttings through a slab of stone he might reach the main effect of it all at once. I have therefore in the plate of the design of Giotto endeavoured especially to mark these points of purpose there as in every other instance black shadows of a graceful form lying on the white surface of the stone like dark leaves laid upon snow hence as before observed the universal name of foil applied to such ornaments nineteen in order to the obtaining their full effect it is evident that much caution is necessary in the management of the glass in the finest instances the traceries are open lights either in towers as in this design of giotto's or in external arcades like that of the camposanto at pisa or the doge's palace at venice 
and it is thus only that their full beauty is shown in domestic buildings or in windows of churches necessarily glazed the glass was usually withdrawn entirely behind the traceries those of the cathedral of florence stand quite clear of it casting their shadows in well-detached lines so as in most lights to give the appearance of a double tracery in those few instances in which the glass was set in the tracery itself as in orsan michele the effect of the latter is half destroyed perhaps the especial attention paid by orogagna to his surface ornament was connected with the intention of so glazing them it is singular to see in late architecture the glass which tormented the older architects considered as a valuable means of making the lines of tracery more slender as in the smallest intervals of the windows of merton college oxford where the glass is advanced about two inches from the centre of the tracery bar that in the larger spaces being in the middle as usual in order to prevent the depth of shadow from further diminishing the apparent interval much of the lightness of the effect of the traceries is owing to this seemingly unimportant arrangement but generally speaking glass spoils all traceries and it is much to be wished that it should be kept well within them when it cannot be dispensed with and that the most careful and beautiful designs should be reserved for situations where no glass would be needed twenty the method of decoration by shadow was as far as we have hitherto traced it common to the northern and southern gothic but in the carrying out of the system they instantly diverged having marble at his command and classical decoration in his sight the southern architect was able to carve the intermediate spaces with exquisite leafage or to vary his wall surface with inlaid stones the northern architect neither knew the ancient work nor possessed the delicate material and he had no resource but to cover his walls with holes cut into foiled shapes like those of the windows this he did often with great clumsiness but always with a vigorous sense of composition and always observe depending on the shadows for effect where the wall was thick and could not be cut through and the foilings were large those shadows did not fill the entire space but the form was nevertheless drawn on the eye by means of them and when it was possible they were cut clear through as in raised screens of pediment like those on the west front of bayeux cut so deep in every case as to secure in all but a direct low front light great breadth of shadow the spandrel given at the top of plate seven is from the southwestern entrance of the cathedral of lisieux one of the most quaint and interesting doors in normandy probably soon to be lost forever by the continuance of the masonic operations which have already destroyed the northern tower its work is altogether rude but full of spirit the opposite spandrels have different though balanced ornaments very inaccurately adjusted each rosette or star as the five-rayed figure now quite defaced in the upper portion appears to have been cut on its own block of stone and fitted in with small nicety especially illustrating the point i have above insisted upon the architect's utter neglect of the forms of intermediate stone at this early period the arcade of which a single arch and shaft are given on the left forms the flank of the door 
three outer shafts bearing three orders within the spandrel which I have drawn, and each of these shafts carried over an inner arcade, decorated above with quatrefoils, cut concave and filled with leaves, the whole disposition exquisitely picturesque and full of strange play of light and shade. For some time the penetrative ornaments, if so they may be for convenience called, maintained their bold and independent character. Then they multiplied and enlarged, becoming shallower as they did so. Then they began to run together, one swallowing up or hanging on to another, like bubbles in expiring foam. Figure four, from a spandrel at Bayeux, looks as if it had been blown from a pipe. Finally they lost their individual character altogether, and the eye was made to rest on the separating lines of tracery, as we saw before in the window. And then came the great change, and the fall of the Gothic power. 21. Figures 2 and 3, the one a quadrant of the star window of the little chapel, close to Santa Anastasia at Verona, and the other a very singular example from the church of the Eremitani at Padua, compared with figure 5, one of the ornaments of the transept towers of Rouen, show the closely correspondent conditions of the early northern and southern Gothic. Footnote. Ornaments of the transept towers of Rouen. The reader cannot but observe agreeableness, as a mere arrangement of shade, which especially belongs to the sacred trefoil. I do not think that the element of foliation has been enough insisted upon in its intimate relations with the power of Gothic work. If I were asked what was the most distinctive feature of its perfect style, I should say the trefoil. It is the very soul of it, and I think the loveliest Gothic is always formed upon simple and bold tracings of it, taking place between the blank lancet arch on the one hand and the overcharged cinquefoiled arch on the other. End of footnote. But, as we have said, the Italian architects, not being embarrassed for decoration of wall surface, and not being obliged, like the Northmen, to multiply their penetrations, held to the system for some time longer, and, while they increased the refinement of the ornament, kept the purity of the plan. That refinement of ornament was their weak point, however, and opened the way for the Renaissance attack. They fell like the old Romans by their luxury, except in the separate instance of the magnificent school of Venice. That architecture began with a luxuriance in which all others expired. It founded itself on the Byzantine mosaic and fretwork, and laying aside its ornaments one by one, while it fixed its forms by laws more and more severe, stood forth, at last, a model of domestic Gothic, so grand, so complete, so nobly systematized, that to my mind there never existed an architecture with so stern a claim to our reverence. I do not accept even the Greek Doric. The Doric had cast nothing away. The fourteenth-century Venetian had cast away, one by one, for a succession of centuries, every splendor that art and wealth could give it. It had laid down its crown and its jewels, its gold and its color, like a king disrobing. It had resigned its exertion, like an athlete reposing. Once capricious and fantastic, it had bound itself by laws inviolable and serene as those of nature herself. 
it retained nothing but its beauty and its power both the highest but both restrained the doric flutings were of a regular number the venetian mouldings were unchangeable the doric manner of ornament admitted no temptation it was the fasting of an anchorite the venetian ornament embraced while it governed all vegetable and animal forms it was the temperance of a man the command of adam over creation i do not know so magnificent a marking of human authority as the iron grasp of the venetian over his own exuberance of imagination the calm and solemn restraint with which his mind filled with thoughts of flowing leafage and fiery life he gives those thoughts expression for an instant and then withdraws within those massy bars and level cusps of stone footnote and leveled cusps of stone the plate represents one of the lateral windows of the third story of the palazzo foscari it was drawn from the opposite side of the grand canal and the lines of its traceries are therefore given as they appear in somewhat distant effect it shows only segments of the characteristic quatrefoils of the central windows i found by measurement their construction exceedingly simple four circles are drawn in contact within the large circle two tangential lines are then drawn to each opposite pair enclosing the four circles in a hollow cross an inner circle struck through the intersections of the circles by the tangents truncates the cusps End of footnote. and his power to do this depended altogether on his retaining the forms of the shadows in his sight far from carrying the eye to the ornaments upon the stone he abandoned these latter one by one and while his mouldings received the most shapely order and symmetry closely correspondent with that of the rouen tracery compare plates three and plates eight he kept the cusps within them perfectly flat decorated if at all with a trefoil palazzo foscari or fillet doge's palace just traceable and no more so that the quatrefoil cut as sharply through them as if it had been stuck out by a stamp told upon the eye with all its four black leaves miles away no knots of flower-work no ornaments of any kind were suffered to interfere with the purity of its form the cusp is usually quite sharp but slightly truncated in the palazzo foscari and charged with a simple ball in that of the doge and the glass of the window where there was any was as we have seen thrown back behind the stonework that no flashes of light might interfere with its depth corrupted forms like those of the casa d'oro and palazzo pisani and several others only served to show the majesty of the common design twenty two such are the principal circumstances traceable in the treatment of the two kinds of masses of light and darkness in the hands of the earlier architects gradation in the one flatness in the other and breadth in both being the qualities sought and exhibited by every possible expedient up to the period when as we have before stated the line was substituted for the mass as the means of division of surface enough has been said to illustrate this as regards tracery but a word or two is still necessary respecting the mouldings 
Those of the earlier times were, in the plurality of instances, composed of alternate square and cylindrical shafts, variously associated and proportioned. Where concave cuttings occur, as in the beautiful west doors of Bayeux, they are between cylindrical shafts, which they throw out into broad light. The eye, in all cases, dwells on broad surfaces, and commonly upon few. In course of time, a low, ridgy process is seen emerging along the outer edge of the cylindrical shaft, forming a line of light upon it and destroying its gradation. Hardly traceable at first, as on the alternate rolls of the north door of Rouen, it grows and pushes out as gradually as a stag's horns, sharp at first on the edge, but, becoming prominent, it receives a truncation and becomes a definite fillet on the face of the roll. Not yet to be checked, it pushes forward until the roll itself becomes subordinate to it and is finally lost in a slight swell upon its sides, while the concavities have all the time been deepening and enlarging behind it, until from a succession of square or cylindrical masses the whole moulding has become a series of concavities edged by delicate fillets, upon which sharp lines of light observe the eye exclusively rests. While this has been taking place, a similar though less total change has affected the flower-work itself. In plate one, figure two a, I have given two from the transepts of Rouen. It will be observed how absolutely the eye rests on the forms of the leaves, and on the three berries in the angle, being in light exactly what the trefoil is in darkness. These mouldings merely adhere to the stone, and are very slightly, though sharply, undercut. In process of time, the attention of the architect, instead of resting on the leaves, went to the stalks. These latter were elongated, B, from the south door of Saint-Lô, and, to exhibit them better, the deep concavity was cut behind, so as to throw them out in lines of light. The system was carried out into continually increasing intricacy until, in the transepts of Beauvais, we have brackets and flamboyant traceries composed of twigs without any leaves at all. This, however, is a partial, though a sufficiently characteristic, caprice, the leaf being never generally banished, and in the mouldings round those same doors, beautifully managed, but itself rendered liney by bold marking of its ribs and veins, and by turning up and crisping its edges, large intermediate spaces being always left to be occupied by intertwining stems. C. From Caudebec. The trefoil of light formed by berries or acorns, though diminished in value, was never lost up to the last period of living Gothic. 23. It is interesting to follow into its many ramifications the influence of the corrupting principle, but we have seen enough of it to enable us to draw our practical conclusion, a conclusion a thousand times felt and reiterated in the experience and advice of every practised artist, but never often enough repeated, never profoundly enough felt. Of composition and invention much has been written, it seems to me, vainly, for men cannot be taught to compose or to invent. Of these, the highest elements of power in architecture, I do not therefore speak, nor here 
of that peculiar restraint in the imitation of natural forms, which constitutes the dignity of even the most luxuriant work of the great periods. Of this restraint I shall say a word or two in the next chapter, pressing now only the conclusion, as practically useful as it is certain, that the relative majesty of buildings depends more on the weight and vigor of their masses than on any other attribute of their design. Mass of everything, of bulk, of light, of darkness, of color, not mere sum of any of these, but breadth of them, not broken light, nor scattered darkness, nor divided weight, but solid stone, broad sunshine, starless shade. Time would fail me altogether if I attempted to follow out the range of the principle. There is not a feature, however apparently trifling, to which it cannot give power. The wooden fillings of belfry lights, necessary to protect their interiors from rain, are in England usually divided into a number of neatly executed crossbars, like those of Venetian blinds, which, of course, become as conspicuous in their sharpness as they are uninteresting in their precise carpentry, multiplying, moreover, the horizontal lines which directly contradict those of the architecture. Abroad such necessities are met by three or four downright penthouse roofs, reaching each from within the window to the outside shafts of its mouldings, instead of the horrible row of ruled lines. The space is thus divided into four or five grand masses of shadow, with grey slopes of roof above, bent or yielding into all kinds of delicious swells and curves, and covered with warm tones of moss and lichen. Very often the thing is more delightful than the stonework itself, and all because it is broad, dark, and simple. It matters not how clumsy, how common the means are, that get weight and shadow, sloping roof, jutting porch, projecting balcony, hollow niche, massy gargoyle, frowning parapet, get but gloom and simplicity, and all good things will follow in their place and time. Do but design with the owl's eyes first, and you will gain the falcons afterwards. 24. I am grieved to have to insist upon what seems so simple. It looks trite and commonplace when it is written, but pardon me this for it is anything but an accepted or understood principle in practice, and the less excusably forgotten because it is, of all the great and true laws of art, the easiest to obey. The executive facility of complying with its demands cannot be too earnestly, too frankly asserted. There are not five men in the kingdom who could compose, not twenty who could cut, the foliage with which the windows of Orsan Michele are adorned. But there is many a village clergyman who could invent and dispose its black openings, and not a village mason who could not cut them. Lay a few clover or wood-roof leaves on white paper, and a little alteration in their positions will suggest figures which, cut boldly through a slab of marble, would be worth more window traceries than an architect could draw in a summer's day. There are few men in the world who could design a Greek capital. There are few who could not produce some vigor of effect with leaf designs on Byzantine block. Few who could design a Palladian front or a flamboyant pediment. Many 
who could build a square mass like the Strozzi Palace. But I know not how it is, unless that our English hearts have more oak than stone in them, and have more filial sympathy with acorns than alps. But all we do is small and mean, if not worse, thin and wasted and unsubstantial. It is not modern work only. We have built like frogs and mice since the thirteenth century, except only in our castles. What a contrast between the pitiful little pigeonholes which stand for doors in the east front of Salisbury, looking like the entrances to a beehive or a wasp's nest, and the soaring arches and kingly crowning of the gates of Abbeville, Rouen, and Reims, or the rock-hewn piers of Chartres, or the dark and vaulted porches and wreathed pillars of Verona. Of domestic architecture what need is there to speak? How small, how cramped, how poor, how miserable in its petty neatness is our best! How beneath the mark of attack and the level of contempt that which is common with us! What a strange sense of formalized deformity, of shriveled precision, of starved accuracy, of minute misanthropy, have we as we leave even the rude streets of Picardy for the market towns of Kent! Until that street architecture of ours is bettered, until we give it some size and boldness, until we give our windows recess and our walls thickness, I know not how we can blame our architects for their feebleness in more important work. Their eyes are inured to narrowness and slightness. Can we expect them at a word to conceive and deal with breadth and solidity? They ought not to live in our cities. There is that in their miserable walls which bricks up to death men's imaginations as surely as ever perished forsworn none. An architect should live as little in cities as a painter. Send him to our hills, and let him study there what nature understands by a buttress, and what by a dome. There was something in the old power of architecture which it had from the recluse more than from the citizen. The buildings of which I have spoken with chief praise rose, indeed, out of the war of the piazza, and above the fury of the populace, and heaven forbid that for such cause we should ever have to lay a larger stone or rivet a firmer bar in our England. But we have other sources of power, in the imagery of our iron coasts and azure hills, of power more pure, not less serene, than that of the hermit spirit which once lighted with white lines of cloisters the glades of the alpine pine, and raised into ordered spires the wild rocks of the Norman sea, which gave to the temple gate the depth and darkness of Elias Horeb cave, and lifted out of the populous city grey cliffs of lonely stone into the midst of sailing birds, and silent air. End of chapter three, part three. Recording by Todd Albrick.